Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Good Trash Genrecast. Just as a friendly reminder, you can find us at good underscore trash on Twitter, as well as Good Trash Genrecast on Facebook, where we will give you not just our most recent uh, podcast episode updates, but uh, much more content as well. So definitely keep your eye on that outlet and get involved with us. We want to hear from you. Thanks. Yippee-ki-yay, mother... Good Trash Genre Cast. Listen to me. You look like a... What? Radioactive camp. What's it supposed to be? Like a banana with a yeast infection. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. There were five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I want to say that stupid line one more time. I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. I got designer t-shirts. Who cares about the goddamn dance chip? I do. I ordered your corsage. It's an orchid. It was like twelve dollars. If it means anything now, I am so sorry. It's just instinctive. It's my bad. I was never a very good practical joker. So do you have any regrets? <laughs> Garfield, maybe. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table, and we talk about the films with film studies type analysis that you'll never actually discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is E.T., and uh, we're going to be talking all about that extraterrestrial because we need one more Earth and uh, <laughs> how we can find that additional planet. And uh, a bunch of space explorers do just that. But we won't get into that just yet. We've got some introductions to make. First and foremost, we have a guest host tonight who is a contributor to the program. And part of our thank you and uh, whatnot is that we allow him to be here. And also we're in his home. So, sir, say something about yourself and tell the people who you are. Uh, I'm Heath Huffman. And um, who said you guys could order pizza? Dustin. Well, it wasn't your mom. Clearly was not your mom. <laughs> <laughs> she did not. I'm Heath Huffman. Uh, I do stand-up comedy. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Huffman Heath. It's just my name backwards. Excellent, excellent. Do follow him there. Uh, across the table, sir, if you'd introduce yourself. I am Arthur Gordon, and they're going to give me a lobotomy or do experiments on me or something. After they cut <laughs> you up. Excellent. Thank you very much. To my left, ma'am, if you would. My name's Alexander Bohannon, and it was not like that penis breath. <laughs> very, very good. And I am the zero charisma of the show. My name nice. is Justin Sells. <laughs> and I am very, very glad to be here with you talking about space exploration with uh, the film E.T. Now, dear listener, we got to warn you, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, and that means there will be spoilerific spoilerages, and you will find out that the indigenous plant life will, in fact, assault everyone on the planet. But we're going to get in that a little bit later. First and foremost, we're going to do a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema, and then our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. And after that, the spoiler embargo is lifted. You've been warned, dear listener. Approach no further if you do not wish to be spoiled on a film that's like 40 years old. So there's that. I oh, my gosh. That. Is it really 40 years old? No, it's like 32. Wow. Wow. But anyway, let's begin now with that synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema, if you would, sir. A troubled child summons the courage to help a friendly alien escape Earth and return to his home world. 
That's right, dear listener, it's Casper the Friendly Alien. We'll be talking all about that here together. Uh, let's begin with those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews just briefly if you like this movie or not. I ask you first, Miss Alexander Bohannon, what say you? I was a first-time watcher of this film. Audiences might ask, Alex, how did you exist so long without seeing this movie? And the answer is, I don't know, honestly, <laughs> um, because I'm not sure how heavily it was in rotation, syndication, what have you, but I just never caught this. I knew the um, iconic moon bike scene, but that was about it. Clearly, you can't call what Alex does as existing. That's right. What we that's, <laughs> that's what we know from this. Yeah. Um, I have to say it... It's it's a it's a unique film. I don't know, but it, for me, it it is it just strikes at the heart of my preferences as just it is an average Spielberg movie. And I, I mean, I know you guys are like making these awful faces at me, but keep in mind, I have yes, you, you're you're doing knife to the heart, and you know I've cut to you to the heart, and I'm to blame, and all that. But you give reviewing a bad name. I, I know, I know, but. <laughs> Some, I don't have that same nostalgia. I think that many people um, in, in watching this film frequently or have seen it before, they're, you know, in their seminal years. Um, I, I just don't have that type of nostalgia for me. Um, but it is an interesting movie and it does do things I don't think that were happening at the time. So, on par, I, I don't know if personally I'll watch it again, but I think that I think it's definitely worth your time. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Parents just don't understand. The government is evil. My heart is melting. Drunk aliens are funny. Overall, it's a lot of fun. And I don't have that same nostalgia, and I this is probably actually my first time to watch it, and I think it's really, really good, um, especially the second act after E.T.'s in the home. The whole sequence where E.T.'s getting drunk and the school and, like, that side-by-side -side is just brilliant, I think. And so, overall, I, I really did uh, – I was hesitant to watch it. Okay. Based off that, just because I was like, ah, E.T. Yeah, I mean, it was my pick, me. but – because it's because, like, I've never seen it and I need to, you know. Yeah. And so, I was really hesitant and I'm really kind of surprised, so I may just lower my ex expectations. But I think this is upper Spielberg, definitely. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Heath Huffman, what say you, sir? You know, I thought the movie was really good after I was uh, able to cut through a lot of the pretty standard Spielberg cheese. I, I must have seen this when I was really, really, really young when I didn't really understand what, what was going on, really. So I was like, oh, seen that. What's next? So uh, I finally got it back around, you know, to seeing it. And and like I said, there's a lot of that sort of like lots of Spielberg tropes that weren't tropes at the time. They were brand new. They're tropes now. So it was hard for me to cut through that, but toward the end, it really grabbed me. It was like re it really, um, like lots of uh, lots of emotional uh, sort of rocking and things like that. And I thought it was really excellent. Yeah, I mean, I think that ending sequence alone at least added an extra star in my reading book. Just like the returning back into the spaceship sequence. Yeah, it definitely pulled up my opinion of the entire movie toward the end, like the very end. I liked it a lot. Well, thank you very much. Uh, for me also, it's a movie that absolutely kicks you in the feels, and it is a movie I grew up with. Uh, this is the movie that made every bicycle ride I ever took magic. 
and Aww. and it's a it's a movie that just it means so much to me and it it holds up very very well. I will point out I have a an anniversary edition of it that has a couple of added and extended scenes, not very much, and there is some CGI work it appears there. I don't like that so much, but everything that's the original ET from 1982 makes my heart so happy, and I feel all the feels, and it's just it's wonderful and beautiful, and it's one of my favorite films of all time. Now, dear listener, you know where were our prejudices and whatnot lie, but guys, we're not here to do this. We're here to get down to business. <laughs> And that business in question, dear listener, is analysis, and we're going to bring some to this particular film. We're very, very excited to do this. I'm excited to hear what everyone's got to say. I begin with you, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Say some great things to me right now. I want to take a bit of a psychoanalytical look at E.T. Uh, in many ways, I think similarly to Hook, Spielberg is telling a story of childhood innocence and how we should hold on to that a bit. Uh, when we talked about Hook, uh, Dalton discussed how the idea uh, came across that we should shuck all responsibility and give in to our inner child. And I don't think E.T. is quite that extreme, but I think it is a recurring theme here. Uh, in this view, I think Elliot acts as an id, and in many ways the movie follows his narrative as an active id. Uh, the movie, uh, the way it's shot, for example, many of the shots are lower shooting up, as though from a child's perspective. Uh, furthermore, before the third act, all of the adults' uh, faces are often obscured, uh, if they are even shot above the waist to begin with. It's a very Charlie Brown setup. The only adult who we do see is Dee Wallace, Elliot's mom. I think this is interesting as it harkens back to the theory of the mirror stage. The mirror stage establishes that as we gain self-awareness through infancy, uh, we begin projecting ourselves, our ego, onto another. That and D. Wallace is hot. I'm just saying. Like, I think my first crush on a woman ever was on D. Wallace. That or Julie Newmar, who played Catwoman on the Batman series. Mm. Julie Newmar's attractive. Mm-hmm. Quite. Oftentimes, this other is the mother, or in certain situations, a primary caregiver. Uh, so it makes sense that we see Mary as fully realized as the children see her. Uh, because in their infancy, they have already identified and formulated their perceptions of her. However, throughout the film, Elliot finds another other in the form of the alien E.T. And E.T. serves as a literal manifestation of Elliot's id. Upon the recent household upheaval uh, of the father leaving, it is apparent that Elliot hasn't handled the situation well. In his grief period, he has regressed psychologically to a more primal state of mind. Elliot oftentimes does whatever he wants or feels without thinking of the consequences. It is after this upheaval that E.T. is first seen and arrives, acting often as a literal representation of the id that Elliot represents. This is further cemented by the psychic connection the two share almost immediately. We now move to Keys, the uh, Professor Keys, played by Philip Coyote, or Peter, Peter Coyote, Coyote. Yeah, Peter Coyote, um, the adult who is often marked just by seeing his keys on his jumpsuit, um, who for all intents and purposes serves the role of ego within the film. Uh, Keys is an older male who in many ways shares attributes of Elliot. He, too, had an experience with an alien when he was around Elliot's age. Uh, their connection is vi visually established as Keyes converses with Elliot in the quarantine zone. As they talk, the camera is on Keyes, who is dressed in his contamination suit, and in the visor there's a reflection of Elliot laying on the table. Uh, the two are made one in this shot, further tying the two together and establishing their connection. As the two characters talk, the thematic thread fully converges, and we see the true meaning of what is happening. 
Upon the removal of the father from the family, Elliot lost a bit of his childhood innocence. He, as children of divorce sometimes are, is expected to grow up and be more careful with his words and uh, mature and develop responsibility. This is established by Michael's dialogue at the dinner table when he reprimands Elliot for the way he talked to his mother. Uh, his reversion back to childhood and the arrival of E.T. is a way for him to stay connected with that innocence and naivety. It is the same childhood innocence that Keyes has been looking for since he was 10. It is the message that Keyes is trying to get across to Elliot, that if he holds on to the idea of E.T., uh, this innocence, he will be a better person right away. Keyes, as the ego, is informing us that having a bit of that it is okay, it's expected, uh, but we have to govern its demands and carefully choose how we move forward when acting on its desires. At the end of the film, through the experience with E.T., Elliot is able to come to grips with the tragedy that has occurred within the family. E.T. allows Elliot to work through some moments in his life and better acknowledge them and how he is expected to deal with them. At the end, Elliot is able to let E.T. go because he has allowed himself to mature and his own ego is able to dialectically grow as it encounters the ideas that E.T. left in Elliot's conscientious mind. Excellent. I like that very much. What do you think about E.T. also evolving into a level of superego uh, throughout the film? Because, you know, the, the, the challenge to Gertie to be good yeah. and sort of that moral structure, you yeah. know, uh, the, the, the idea of the symbolic order also in Lacan. But in yeah. Freud, is, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you see that some yeah, work yeah. in there, too? Yeah, responsibility kind of growing through E.T. Excellent, excellent. I like that reading very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Thank you for that. Mr. Heath Huffman, what analysis bring you? Well, today I wanted to kind of talk through a pretty standard sort of Spielberg trope, especially in movies where uh, the protagonists are children. Kids know better than adults in these movies, and this is pretty standard for Spielberg. And it even starts at the opening scene because I believe E.T. possesses a lot of, um, even though he's a very, he's, his race came to Earth, which would suggest he's fairly advanced, but he also possesses a lot of uh, sort of infantile properties, and he kind of progresses through. Uh, the opening scene, the the exposition shots of Earth are very uh, are very foreign in a way. Uh, you're going through bushes, and you and you, and you look down on on the city where the movie takes place, and it looks like nothing we would recognize um, because I, I feel like it takes a has a good take on uh like showing what ET's experiencing just through just through the shots just to tag on to your point just a minute Heath one thing i was remarking as i watched the film was how it's lit and there is all the lighting sort of does make everything strange even when they're looking at the old shed and the lights coming out of it and they've got the smoke in the air and they've got the red light up the steps where the trash cans are there is a sort of throughout exterior shots that sort of kind of they they do this Ostrania thing. They make it strange. Yeah, they they give it an air of mystery, but it's not necessarily an air of foreboding mystery, which is what I was what I was picking up on. And so, what we notice very quickly is that Elliot and his siblings are the only people that are honestly capable of uh, giving E.T. what he needs at the time, and E.T. sort of develops. Uh, as a as a person, so to speak, under the tutelage of children, and we also understand fairly quickly with like the shot um, where Elliot's uh, dropping the Reese's pieces for E.T. to come back to. Yeah, yeah, you know there are there's a there's an adult there who we don't recognize at the time, checking out on it at the same time, and you know Elliot 
doesn't trust him. And so we, we get the air pretty quickly that adults aren't to be trusted because they don't know what E.T. needs. Like, because kids know better than adults in this movie. Because back to preserving your innocence, adults do, uh, adults come off in this film as not necessarily, uh, with poor intentions, but certainly jaded, um, very calculating in how they proceed and everything. And, uh, uh, the film champions, uh, childlike naivete. In fact, there was a scene, there was another scene in this movie where they were, uh, where the children were reading Peter Pan in the house. And I thought that was a very interesting kind of drop on, uh, on again, championing that childlike wonder and naivete that, uh, sort of gives, sort of gives uh, kids the sort of advantage to help an alien like E.T. in this situation. And like I said, adults are jaded and not necessarily poorly intentioned. Professor Keyes, when he was talking to Elliot in that quarantine chamber, you could tell his his he had the best intentions. It's just that adults adults just don't understand, right? all the same no matter time no place they don't understand that us kids are going to make some mistakes so to you other kids all across the land there's no need to argue parents just don't understand when they're trying to resuscitate et elliot's shouting you're killing him you're killing him because he knows uh how to necessarily care for et and it goes back to that connection but you know the kid would know Absolutely, and I think it's a it's a major trope in Spielberg. Gremlins does the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Billy's the only one that gets the cops are all making fun of him in the office when he's, you know, trying to explain that these gremlins are going on, yeah. right? And he's doing this thing. And also, I think in horror in general, there is this sort of idea: the kids discover the whatever, and no one listens to them, you know, which I think feeds into some sort of cultural milieu where you know mm-hmm. my parents just don't understand me. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very good. Thank you very much, Mister Heath Huffman, Miss Alexander Bohannon. What say you in terms of analysis? Sure. First, when I was watching this, I thought that my analysis would be about how, according to this film, humans have kind of the superior intelligence regarding how the world works. However, this is not the case as it is discussed on many occasions how smart E.T. is despite his childlike innocence. But then how could you explain away the three children's obsession with making him more like them and then making him understand their culture without reciprocity? Humans are obsessed with cultural assimilation. Throughout this film, E.T. is con- consistently taught things about humanity without without the children learning things about E.T. While Elliot, I, I thought it was interesting that Elliot, E.T., E.T., you know, mm-hmm. the names and everything. It's pretty nice. While Elliot experiences this psychic link with his this alien, he is still projecting his experiences on him. I'm sure E.T. on his home planet has a name. That is obviously not E.T. But that he's associated with, but we never we never understand it or know it. As an inherently selfish race of people, humans, we try and impose our ways and views on others almost constantly. This is a universal trope, not necessarily for Americans and especially regarding American exceptionalism. Um, wars on religious grounds, many religions of all flavors try and convert other humans that do not believe as they do um, to their religion violently or coercively. Um, I feel like in comparing this version of science fiction and um, alien relations to another well-known Doctor Who, I feel like Doctor Who has done the best in science fiction as being inclusive instead of 
mostly assimilative. The doctor and his companion, a time lord and a human, are, are experiencing other cultures for the most part. And yes, I know there's that still human obsession that's present throughout all science fiction where everything is regarding the human race and everything revolves around the humans. And that's just like a thing that's always going to be there because we're the humans and we have to look into this world. Um, but it's not this case of the of Doctor Who is not necessarily um, like E.T. in terms of this 100% assimilation. E.T. is a superior being in terms of the technology he brings from his uh, race of people uh, to Earth. And the fact that we really don't learn anything from him before he phones home is is troubling uh, mirror of what happens in other cultures. And I do understand that Elliot does get um, experiences and he develops this connection with E.T. that can never be broken. And maybe it's just the the feelings and experiences from developing that psychic link as that um, older gentleman whose name escapes me played by Coyote. Um, We're going to call him Doctor Keys. Doctor Keys, but I don't. That's not his name. Okay. Well, whatever Doctor Keys experienced, the sim a similar thing, but he doesn't. Neither of them really have a firm grasp on, you know, who Et is as a specific whatever he is. You know, because we don't even know his race, his name, do we? No. No. Yeah, um, so it's it's the fact that we we don't learn anything bef from him before he phones home, and it's a and it's a troubling mirror of what happens when we experience other cultures. In our eagerness to overshare and assimilate, we do not have the patience to learn from other cultures, which could improve our li our life's outcomes. Excellent. Yeah, this film definitely falls in that category of the liberal science fiction film versus the conservative one. Mm -hmm. In that, you know, the expansive, progressive, open acceptance versus they're here to kill us all, let's kill them first. Right. Uh, and yeah. and it was refreshing to see that because we have unintentionally watched um, basically a month's worth of um, alien surrounding movies from Alien to Predator to um, Independence Day. Yeah. So, and they were all that conservative, we're going to kill you really hard kind of movies. So it is nice to see a gentler side to, you know, alien-centric science fiction. But at the same time, you know, there's got to be a little more balance there as well. Outstanding. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. Uh, the analysis I want to bring right now, I'm actually going to bring two analyses, partly because I feel sort of contractually oblig uh, obliged to mention uh, the religious symbolism. Thank you. I was, was, was going to hope mm -hmm. that you are going to put that yep. down there. And so I, I just want to go, go ahead and point it out. E.T. is Jesus, and yep. let me tell you why. I mean, he's a spaceman from somewhere else. He comes to this planet. It's not a one-to-one, -one, you know, correspondence. He doesn't, you know, do a Superman thing, which has also got a very much a Christ story slash Moses story working for it as well. But uh, what he does then is he does healing. He does resurrection when it comes to a potted uh, of flowers and whatnot. Uh, he builds a group of disciples, and then he dies and raises again from the dead, only to be brought to some mountainside with a group of followers there with him. He gives a challenge to be good. He reminds them that, hello, he'll be with them even into the end of the age, or rather, I'll always be right here and then ascends into the heavens with the same iconography of Christian teaching as well, with the, with the sacred heart of Jesus that we have beating in his chest. Also, the, the, the circular opening as he's um, standing in the, in the spaceship as it ascends uh, fits with Eastern Orthodox um, iconography for their icons of the ascension. I actually own a, uh, uh, an icon of the ascension, and the same circular uh, structure directly behind Christ as he ascends in the heavens is always used in Christian iconography, and so it's very much uh, leans heavily upon all of that. 
uh, what to make of Steven Spielberg and his Jewishness making a Hollywood movie for an overwhelmingly Protestant audience, what that exactly means about Christianity and the influence therein in narrative, or Joseph Campbell and the idea of the monomyth. I leave that to your listener to suss out and decide what they think. I'd love to hear what you say. But I feel like I am, again, contractually obliged to at least mention that that is going on yeah, in the I film. Yeah, I mean, it's super there. Like, it's it's so there that we... I feel like the listener would be like, hold on a second. I mean, you just totally didn't even mention one of the more obvious readings in the movie, so... And so the second thing I want to talk about, or rather the primary thing I wanted to mention uh, in terms of analysis, is I want to talk about how narrative is constructed in terms of music, because I think John Williams and his Academy Award-winning score in this film uh, very much speaks to that. Sometimes I listen to score, and, I, and I've had this conversation before where it's less iconic in some ways than, say, the Star Wars score or at least the opener in Jaws or what you get from Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that. Uh, but that being said, it is absolutely iconic. There's some clear magic to what he does. And what uh, Williams relies upon is, uh, is a term called the leitmotif. And the leitmotif is where particular moments or connections between characters or particular uh, characters themselves have musical cues that rest on them. I mean, think about Darth Vader in Star Wars and the, and the Imperial March, or Luke's theme, which is became the main theme of the Star Wars series. It's sort of this always heroic sort of thing that's going on. And that, when it happens in that way, what it does is it tells the viewer what's happening, how to feel and to, and we t- we joke about this a lot of times how John Williams makes you do the feeling he does the, all the feeling for you and there is some truth to that but it also begins to cue you as to this is what's happening this is what we're looking for this is what we're going at and particularly in ET uh, there is a, a, a very much a romantic erotic connection uh, between uh, ET and Elliot that that the, the this main theme song is something of a love song and as soon as they begin to meet you don't hear that full theme you only hear suggestions of it and you hear it played in sort of a confounding way, you hear it in sort of an anxious way, that the keys shift and change, and you don't actually hear the full song until Elliot's bike takes flight in sort of a climactic sort of moment, right? And then, of course, that same music uh, comes back again when all of the boys together take flight, and then the full thing uh, reaches its, its total crescendo at the end with the same theme, but also accompanied by John Williams' very famous use of fanfare, which is... I would say somewhat orgasmic, if I can say such a thing. I'll have what she's having. Uh, about that. And I, I, don't, I don't mean to say, you know, Elliot and E.T. were banging or something like that. That's not the suggestion <laughs> I'm trying to make at all. No, I, I, I get that totally. <laughs> but, but I do think the music is much more like that of a romance film than it is like that of, say, a standard science fiction and but that use of leitmotif uh, of being able to plant that idea of course ideas of threat every time you you know you're going to see Peter Coyote's character before you see him when Elliot goes from behind the tree and he's out in the woods searching for ET and he's throwing his Reese's pieces around you hear a suggestion of the same little bit of oboe heavy uh, clarinet heavy bit of music before you even see him and so it prepares you as an audience to see what's going on in the same way that romantic moment it prepares you for this this is happening
happening. This this thing keeps coming. We're waiting for something to happen. There's going to be a climax. They're they're finally going to seal the deal in their relationship again. If we went with romantic terms, and uh, film does this a lot. And again, to suggest to you how you how you feel, how you understand things. Another great and very very important example. There's a very victorious moment in Return of the Jedi in which uh, Luke chops off Vader's hand. And uh, but and Luke has kind of gone over to the dark side, and the, the the text itself of the film doesn't say that, but very very softly as Luke looks upon Vader's hand, you begin to hear this very soft version of the Imperial March. Then yeah. it fades out, and that's like Luke won the battle, right? And so there, what I want to say, dear listener, is pay attention to the music. It's not just filler, so it's not so quiet when you're watching a film, especially a major Hollywood blockbuster like this. They are suggesting narrative threads to you uh, that you probably intuitively are picking up, but realize this is how they're telling me the story. They're not actually using pictures always or dialogue, which is the most typical way that we understand story to be told. But there's a whole lot of storytelling uh, in, the, in the use of leitmotif, and again, John Williams being the king of leitmotif uh, in film, and E.T. is an example par excellence of precisely that. Great job, Dustin. That was good. Thanks, Alex. Everyone did a great job. I yeah. like the analysis that I've heard here good. today. Dear listener, we're hoping you appreciate it just as much. And now we come to a point in the show where we must render a verdict. And we must determine whether this film is, in fact, good trash, perhaps too good trash for us. Or perhaps it is merely disposable popcorn tripe. And then to recommend what else we would watch if we would recommend it, or what instead we would watch if we'd substitute it. I begin with you. Mr. Heath Huffman, what say you? Given everything the mo- the film tried to do, preserve your innocence, avoid prejudice, be refreshingly naive, I think all of these things were executed very well. Um, I would give it, let's see, I would give it six spilled potato salads on the floor out of nine. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. What are your um, in- else's then? If you haven't seen it, Avatar... Uh, a lot of the same themes about understanding a group of people different from you. Uh, a lot of different themes are similar in Avatar. So check out Avatar if you haven't already seen it, if you like DT. Thank you very much, Mr. Huffman. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? I think this is one of Spielberg's better works. Uh, it's iconic for a lot of reasons, and I think at times it is genius. Uh, I say uh, I think you need to watch this with Close Encounters, probably before you watch this. 
I think it serves as a spiritual sequel quite well because the aliens have come back to Earth and they're living with us now. Um, I say, well, check out Men in Black just because any chance I get to plug Men in Black, I think, is a good time to do so. <laughs> uh, catch some old episodes of ALF, uh, uh, another oh, alien. Oh, wow, that's good. That's good. Uh, check out Super 8. Uh, again, J.J. Abrams, Super 8. And then uh, Stand By Me, I think would work well here. Ooh, I like Stand By Me as a pick. Very, very well played, sir. Thank you very much. Miss Alexandra Bohanna, what say you? Oh, this is a shelfable film, I think. I think everyone should watch this. I mean, put it on your shelf if you own movies. I, I'm not a movie owner, so I probably wouldn't because I just don't buy even the movies that I love. So I know that's weird. It's just not, I, that's not my collecting thing, like my collecting fetish. Don't nod your head at me. I don't like you. All right. Mm-hmm. So I would give this movie um, 14 out of a possible 21 drugged yet liberated frogs. So, um, and then movies that you could also watch with this. I remember watching the animated film, I- the iron giant when I was really little, but I do, um, remember a lot of similar feelings. I haven't seen that since probably I was six or something. So, you know, that one is, you know, go, it's up to you if you want to check it out with this, but I just, they seem similar in my recollections um i'm gonna also recommend hook because there is a lot of crossover between the similar themes and we didn't even get into this piece of analysis i had about how tink and the mother are really kind of put in the same place in both of these films in terms of like their feminist femininity as a role and then um i'd also recommend harry potter just because the first Harry Potter one and two, because that's the Christopher Columbus with the John Williams score. And there were like the childhood innocence, discovering new worlds, you know, everything is fun and happy and, and, and wonderful and all that. So definitely the first two Harry Potter films I would also recommend with this. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. I am also going to say shelf. It already is on my shelf. It absolutely belongs on every shelf. It is, I would say, Cultural touchstone. It's a much watch. Definitely, absolutely yeah. a must. Especially watch. is that. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to give it a nine and a half ominous key rings out of a possible ten. I mean, I just I love this movie that much. And uh, what I would furthermore say is that you should, in addition, watch Gremlins, which does some similar types of things uh, with that. Uh, again, Boyhood and growing up kind of things. And so I also recommend Boyhood. Uh, the recent Oscar nominee, uh, because I think it really is sort of a, the, that it's about dealing with divorce and growing up and just trying to find your way in a world that doesn't make any sense. And so strangely, I think it's a very good pair uh, for that. Dear listener, what would be your pairs? What would you recommend? Would you shelf or trash the movie E.T.? We'd love to hear all of that in that magical media means that we all know as social media. Mr. Arthur Gordon, you know anything about that? I do. Uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook at facebook.com forward slash good trash uh, genre cast. Uh, we've got some feedback this week. We've had a couple of new likes. And so thank you for that, dear listener. Uh, we also, I asked, uh, what is everybody fired up about this week in pop culture? And uh, Fran King said, The Strain, season two, and then quoted Dustin saying, quote, I love me some vampires, end quote. I do say that sometimes. That's accurate. Fran doesn't even know me. He knows I say that. And then Elizabeth Collins said that she's excited about Batman versus Superman. Looks pretty damn good. And so uh, that's what we got coming in from the Facebook. Uh, you could also check us out on Gmail, uh, Google Plus. Add us to your circles, the little thing. Email us goodtrashgenrecast at gmail dot com. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. 
Miss Alexandra Bohannon, do you know anything else about social media memes by which conversations might be held? Well, I mean, I just happen to know things about these social media memes. You can also find us at Twitter at good underscore trash. This week, we have some some interactions with our official Twitter page. We got a couple of new new follows from uh, a film that's actually started following me, Alex V Books, on Twitter um, first, and then I recommended them. Hey, um, Demon Semene film. Thanks for the follow. If you haven't yet, follow Good Trash, the podcast I'm on. We love talking to fil- indie film crews, and then he followed us. A certain stand-up comedian known as Alex Sanchez, known as Mr. Dad on on Twitter, followed us as well, as well as Captain Conbox, and um, we've been added to some podcast lists. And then Brigham Cole tweeted at just about everyone he knows, um, including the show, um, that the, about the Star Wars Comic Con panel. And I have not given that a watch yet, but I will put that on my to watch list. And then besides a couple of favorites, that's about all we've got going on this week. But dear listener, if you want to interact with us, we love talking to you. So if you um, ever want to say hello, we are there on Twitter for you to uh, tweet home. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohan. And of course, you can leave comments for us and ratings at iTunes, Stitcher Internet Radio, and also on the Podbean site itself, goodtrashhonorcast.podbean.com. We'd love to hear from you there. Also, since everyone else is um, pimping out their own ride, um, you can find Arthur Gordon on Twitter at review, and you can find me at Dustin underscore Sells. You can also find our regular co-host, who just happens to be absent this week, uh, Dalton Stewart at doll underscore stew, as in a hearty dish made out of the parts of your Barbie. And uh, mm. so uh, do do follow us there as well and keep the conversation going. He said do do. I did. He did. Nice. It's my duty Barbie. to say do do. He said duty. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, guys. Well, enough of this silly poopy talk. Uh, I think it's time to play the game. This week's game are cinematic movie creatures we'd like to have as pets. That's right. Cinematic movie creatures we would like to have as pets. Brought to you this week by E.T. E.T. Phone home. (laughs) Very well done. Thank you very much, Miss Alexandra Bohannon. So, Alex, since you did that, what is your pick or picks? Oh, uh, mine is just, just one, keeping it simple. I do love dragons. Um, I would not want to have Daenerys' dragons from Game of Thrones, but I would love to have um, a little dragon by the name of Toothless from How to Train Your Dragon as a uh, movie monster pet because he is just the sweetest. Oh, my goodness. He's like a giant kitty but can fly, and then, um, you know, he shoots fire and everything. Um, Definitely, I love that movie so much, and so having Toothless as my, my bestest buddy and my best alternative to... Uh, a car would be fantastic. Oh, so good. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Uh, harking back to my shelf of trash, uh, first I would say Alf. Uh, I want somebody I could just sit around and talk to. Maybe uh, I could, you know, you could eat some cats. We could make some jokes. It'd be a good time to be had. Um, next, I want Gizmo, the gremlin. Uh, just, you know, I can't feed him after midnight or put water on him. But other than that, it'd be a good time. He's cute and cuddly. Also, keep him out of the sunlight, Arthur. I uh, do what I want. There are three rules. There three are, rules. That's too always. Many rules, though. There's too many rules. Uh, finally, I want a Velociraptor. 
Uh, <laughs> wow, that's this a movie monster and for we, you. Uh, we, I've mentioned that before on the show that I would love a raptor. Uh, I'm going to up the ante. I want the raptor squad from Jurassic World. I want Blue, Delta, Charlie, and Alpha. I want the whole, I want the whole gang. And we would terrorize people. I don't know what we would do. Performing musicals, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But I want the whole I want the whole squad. I'm entirely terrified of you now, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I'm never going to your house again. Thank you very much. Mr. Heath Huffman, what say you? I don't know if it qualifies as a movie monster, but I would like to or even a pet, but I'd like to at least be pretty good friends with Chewy. Yeah, yeah that's fair. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's a, that's fair. Hang yeah. out. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. That's a guy I could get to know. <laughs> That was the worst Chewy present <laughs> ever. I'm so sorry. You want to try Your that? Holes, no. You want to try that again? <laughs> oh my! Well, we'll put that one right on the fridge, <laughs> right there. But yeah, he doesn't qualify as a pet, but he qualifies as a friend. That's all we need. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Heath Huffman. I've got a couple picks I'd like to select as well. Um, I want to mention uh, the Luck Dragon from The NeverEnding Story. Yeah, that'd I knew be someone would do that. Handy to have. And again, um, also a conveyance device if I don't have a car. So there is that. Uh, although I, if you speak of some sort of sentient creature as a device, then suddenly you feel very bad about yourself. I don't exactly. know how I feel about that. Uh, also, a pick I really thought Alexander Bohan would select, which is Hedwig. The oh, white owl. well, derp. I mean, I mean come I, on, right? Alex. Get with the program. I did think about Harry Potter, but I actually thought of Buckbeak first, but then I was like, I talk about Harry Potter too much. Buckbeak I mean, so cool. Yeah. That would be good. Yeah, that'd yeah. be good, too. Yeah, definitely. Buckbeak, yeah. But it's easier to carry Hedwig around. Yeah. So there is that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Crookshanks would also be nice. That's just a, a really, you know, perceptive cat. So, you know. Excellent, excellent. Well, dear listener, what movie creatures would you like to have as a pet or homie uh, in your life? I'm so gangster, I say homie. So I'm so gangster, I say gangster. Yep. Yep, that just happened. (laughs) I think we need to move on uh, for real, for real, because I think it's time to talk about what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. So, let's begin with our co-host once again, Miss Alexander Bohannon. What are you fired about this week? Um, just uh, one thing. Um, they, I can't remember which publishing house put it out, but um, they have re-envisioned Archie in the form of new, um, newly drawn comic books. They're not in that, um, that hokey drawn style anymore, even though I have shoeboxes upon shoeboxes of Archie and Jughead and Betty and Veronica double digests. And I mean, I have a bajillion of those. So as a diehard Archie fan growing up with no access to a regular comic book store, otherwise I would have totally been into those. Um, so the fact that they're re-releasing Archie, but they're making it way like they're making it serious and making it like, you know, real teenage drama, not just like this kind of soda fountain milkshakes kind of kind of deal. Have you uh, you've heard about it too? Yeah, I was gonna say actually, uh, I was looking at the first uh, issue the other day at Hastings, kind of just skimming through it, and it looked really interesting. Yeah, I picking it up. I definitely want to buy that. I think I'd I'd be worth to own own those as they came out since I, 
you know, I mean, of course I'd like to buy the book if it got published, you know, in a compendium style, but, um, it kind of is a nice homage to my childhood. We go to the grocery store and pick up the latest, the issue, you know, what they had there. So that's really the only thing that, and, um, the fact that we, we have finally acquired a car for me and I'm so relieved and that's not really pop culture, but it's just like such a huge like game yeah. changer that's that so uh, it's very exciting. <laughs> so that's about it for this camp. Go here. watch American Graffiti immediately. All right. I will it'll help. The, it'll help the purchase feel well. Mr. Heath Huffman, are you fired up this week? I am fired up this month. Rick and Morty season two is coming out. Very excited about yeah. that. Yeah. I saw the first two episodes leaked. I watched them both immediately. <laughs> Show holds up. It's going to be good. Also this summer, uh, BoJack Horseman Season 2 is coming out. Don't miss that. And then finally, uh, a bit of a shameless plug for myself. No shame. No shame. I'll be at Sauced on the 18th for the Comedy Cares Showcase. Uh, I'll, it's a free show. Donations are suggested, and all benefits go to the National Suicide Hotline. So if you're around here, come see some comedy. On July 18th. On July 18th. July 18th at Sauced on Paseo. And Mr. Heath Huffman promises now if he gains 15 Twitter followers who tweet at him good trash, he will perform his set Sauced. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> I totally ran him into that. That'll be hilarious. Thank you very much, Mr. Heath Huffman. Mr. Arthur Gordon, are you fired up this week? Uh, I am. Just to quickly piggyback off Alex's Archie uh, game, uh, I was at Hastings at the comic book store the other day, and, and hearkening back to last week's game when we envisioned uh, potential Predator uh, one-on-ones. Oh, my God. There is a Predator versus Archie tie-in. Uh, uh, I saw part three of four, or part three of four, yes. I think that's the right phrasing. I'm looking when for. Because Archie could only live four episodes. Yeah, right. when you te- texted that to me, I about died. That was uh, just so brilliant. The, oh, my God. Yeah, the cover splash is Archie and uh, Predator sharing a milkshake, I believe is what it was. And it's it was pretty classic. That's cute. Down um, with the old sock hop. Anyway, uh, back to my week in pop culture. Uh, I was gifted uh, Stephen King's uh, Finders Keepers, his newest novel, uh, which is a follow-up to Mr. Mercedes following some of the same characters. And so I'm excited to read that because I like Stephen King a lot. Um, over at Barnes and Noble, uh, it is the month of July, and that means all Criterion uh, Collection DVDs, Blu-rays are half off, and so there are some really cool gems in that collection uh, if you're looking and if you're a collector. Um, so go check that out. Also, it is San Diego Comic Con week month, of course, something like that, and so a lot of news. Uh, Pacific Rim Two starts shooting next year, uh, which is exciting because the first one's a really fun movie. Um, the Deadpool trailer has leaked, and it looks like a lot of fun. A lot of comedy, uh, red band trailer, so it's going to be R-rated. It's, it looks like it's going to be a, just really true to the character and a lot of fun. And there's a new extended, uh, better trailer for Batman versus Superman, which kind of gives details on why Batman's going after Superman and, and really what's going on in the world following Man of Steel. And so it looks pretty good and exciting. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. The only thing I'm fired about is already been mentioned. It is The Strain Season 2 opening tonight as we record. I'm very, very fired up about that because... I do love me some vampires, as it turns out. So, dear listener, there you go. That's a show. Next week, we're going to be looking at... (laughs) We do know it's the aircraft touching down. Yeah, are these the roots? What is it? Statue of Liberty or Snowman. (laughs) Daddy, what's martial law?
to see worldwide. Is anyone doing better than we are? We've lost the East Coast. Moscow's still dark. Life as we know it will come to an end in 90 days. It's on us to change that. I can't leave my family. Don't pretend your family is exempt. When we talk about the end of humanity. sent from this installation. Pretty obvious nobody back home bothered to read it. I could get into Russia. Where would I start? Russia's a black hole. I need answers. Guns are half measure. You with the CIA? But they're not with me. Karen. Is there anything left up there? If we knew where this thing started, maybe we could kill it. These things have a weakness. Every human being we save. It's one less to fight. In a zombie apocalypse. That's right. It's going to be World War Z. We're going to stick with blockbusters, but we're going to get away from aliens and do something a little bit different there. So take a look at that. Take a look at E.T. and have a conversation about the movies because they are so much more than 90 minutes spent whilst eating popcorn. They're about what the world means and what's going on around us. And so have that conversation, and we will see you next time. Come back again. I want you to stay next time Cause sometimes the world ain't kind When people get lost like you and me I just made a friend A friend is someone you need had to go away I still feel the words that he might say Turn on your hot light Let it shine wherever you go Let it make a happy glow for all the world to see Turn on your heart light In the middle of a young boy's dream Don't wake me up too soon Gonna take a ride across the moon You and me Everyone needs a place 
most excellent place of all And I'll be right here if you should call Take a ride across the moon 